Vodka. 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 Vodka O'Clock. Hey everyone, it's Amber Love and you're listening to a special episode of Vodka O'Clock. This was recorded live at the first ever FlameCon in Brooklyn. This was hosted by Geeks Out. You can go to geeksout.org or flamecon.org to learn more about the show. And this particular panel was uh, myself and Jenny Wood and Jill Pantosi. We were talking about women creating awesome because all of us create different kinds of things. So we talked about cosplay. We talked about writing comics and writing novels. And Jenny's also a musician. So she talked a little bit about that. Um, If it sounds like we were half asleep, it's because it was scorching hot. It was unbelievably hot in the building, um, particularly in that salon where the panel was held. Um, so, you know, it was a beautiful building. It just had some problems in, in regards to certain particular things. So go check out the write out, the, the write out, the write up at amberodbest.com to see what, um, my impressions of the show and the venue were. And if you like this kind of content and any of my interviews, which is the normal format of Vodka Clock, just go to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked, and you can sponsor the show on the website for as little as a dollar per week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers. Hey, everybody. I'm Jill Pantosi. I'm the editor-in-chief of MarySue.com. Welcome to Women Create Awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's what I do. Um, I do... Other things, when I have time, which I don't uh, currently being the editor-in-chief, but um, I will let these two lovely ladies take on their own uh, introduction so I don't uh, forget anything they do. (laughs) Yeah, my business card just gets bigger and bigger. Um, I'm Amber Love, and I podcast, and I write comics, and I write uh, prose, and I am also a figure model, so it's a different type of working with the arts. And I blog a lot. So, um, so it's all different kinds of writing, usually, but uh, turn it over to Jenny. Uh, I'm Jenny Wood. I am a writer. I'm the creator of Flutter, which is a graphic novel series on 215 Inc. I also wrote a young adult novel in the last year uh, on 215 Inc. I teach a com- writing comics and graphic novels at Grub Street, which is an independent writing center in Boston. And I write nonfiction, news, current events for a website called infoplease.com. Um, since we have a, a small panel, I'll, I'll go into a little about my background, and then maybe you guys can too. Um, I I got through to, through to this uh, current position in a very sort of roundabout way. Um, I went to college for journalism, um, thinking I was going to be a, a news anchor, a regular old-fashioned news anchor. And uh, right out of college, I got an opportunity to be a DJ on the radio, and I wound up doing that for five years. <laughs> And then I missed writing, so I started my own blog in 2008 um, on thenerdybird.com and uh, started writing about conventions and going to these things and reporting on it like I would if I was you know, hired to do so, and eventually started sending my work out to other um, sites out there like CPR, Newsarama, and eventually they said, oh yeah, this is the kind of stuff we're looking for. And um, in 2008, there was you know very few vocal women online talking about comic books and other geek things, so I think it was sort of a, uh, oh wow, here's a here's a girl writing about these sort of things, let's grab her, you know. Um, but 
but eventually I was doing that for, for so long and, and was freelancing um, with so many other sites, MTV, Publishers Weekly, um, IGN, that I eventually quit my job in radio and started freelancing full time. Uh, and then I wanted something more stable and was on Twitter one day tweeting about how I wanted you know, to find full time work doing what I was doing you know, currently. And uh, Susanna Polo, who was the founder of Mary Sue, um, she said, well, would you be interested in a uh, paid internship? And at the time, I had the time to do that, so I took that, that opportunity, and it turned out that they were actually looking for a third staff member. Um, so I eventually made my way up, and, and here I am uh, a few years later as editor-in-chief, uh, and it's been quite a wild, wild ride. Um. I have a strangely similar origin that ended up somewhere completely different. Um, I went to college and I was on the air running the radio station in my college and um, thought someday I'd you know, be a, you know, working in news in you know, the Big Apple and decided that um, it was better for me to just skip all of that and uh, try to you know make it out in my country life I live out in the middle of nowhere so when the internet came along I started blogging that's how I met Jill was we just had uh, very similar blog styles and uh, we were both from Jersey so I started cosplaying back in 2006 and that's really how I ended up just meeting so many people and hanging out at the comic shop and doing a lot of charity work and um, Eventually, when podcasting technology became so much easier and accessible, and you don't need to be a big, you know, news station to do it, uh, I went from uh, contributing to other podcasts to just doing my own. Um, because what I was finding was there were a lot of all-male podcasts talking about comics, so I used to send them segments and stuff, and they were really great about it. And uh, you know, I met a ton of people, but um, I can very easily talk for an hour on my own. So <laughs> I started my own show. <laughs> It's a great show. Thanks. <laughs> um, I think I'll talk about my kind of evolution as uh, writing comics because I, I teach a graphic novel comic writing class and I get a lot of people who are like, well, how do you get even get started? Um, my background is I, I study theater in undergrad. I was a playwriting uh, major and I was also in a lot of indie bands and writing a lot of songs. Um, when I started working on Flutter, which is a, about a girl who shapeshifts into a boy, uh, to get her dream girl, and then the chaos that comes from pretending to be someone she's not. Um, I started playing around with it in a couple different formats. One was because um, of the background in playwriting as a kind of teleplay and a screenplay, but I couldn't get my brain around like the really bad special effects that would happen with shape-shifting. So then I started it as um, a short story or a novel, playing around with it in prose, and it just felt too flat, too static. Um, I wanted to visually see the, the shape-shifting. Um, but I can't draw. I, stick figures, even, are terrible. So um, around that time, I was reading a bunch of graphic novels. I grew up reading comics, but like most people, got away from it in high school and college and found my way back to it through graphic novels, through Fun Home, through Brian K. Vaughn's Why the Last Man, uh, through Craig Thompson's Blankets. And those are three very different graphic novels, but what I saw is you can really do anything if you create humans and, and you ground them in a believable world and that's when I was like I'm gonna do Flutter as a comic series as a graphic novel series but again I didn't even know the format of a comic script so I actually took the graphic novel comic writing class uh, that I'm now teaching five years later at Grub Street 
and learned that the format that's kind of evolved as a comic script over the years is not that similar. I mean, if there's one set standard, it's not that similar. It, it's very similar to a screenplay, which is something I had experience in. So it came very natural to me. And then through a mutual friend at Grub Street, I met um, the artist for Flutter. And that's just kind of how that started. Since then, I've been writing comics for different anthologies. Just finished uh, volume two. We, we're putting it together now to, to uh, Flutter to publish later this summer. Um, I, I wanted to speak about um, crowdfunding a little bit and how that has, um, you know, just changed the landscape of, of where we are um, entirely. Um, I have no personal experience with it, um, but I know plenty of people who have had both, you know, successful and failed Kickstarters and, um, you know, Indiegogos and all that sort of thing. What is uh, your experience been both either in your own creative process with those sorts of things or just how you feel about that personally um, with other creators that you enjoy? We were talking about this downstairs about at what point are you maybe too famous to be begging for money through um, crowdsourcing. And uh, basically it took seeing the fans of Veronica Mars and seeing millions of dollars go to people who already have millions of dollars or access to it for me to just say, well, whatever, I'm not contributing, so I don't really care what they do, they're fans. And um, meanwhile, I've seen my friends trying to get $8,000 to make their indie comics and it's really hard sometimes just to get to $8,000. Meanwhile, you see everybody else that's, you know, bringing in 40,000 sometimes for a graphic novel. So, uh, everybody's experiences are different. Sometimes uh, it's just a matter of how trendy you get or what kind of coverage you get. I mean, one of my friends right now has wonderful blurb quotes from people like Mark Wade and Mike Norton, and he still has a, a ways to go to reach his goal. So I had thought about Kickstarter and decided that it just wasn't right for what I needed, and then Patreon came along. And this finally answered my prayers because I can't use PayPal anymore because I'm way too naughty. <laughs> so I got kicked off to PayPal. So Patreon came along, and um, it's basically a tip jar. And it's been wonderful for me. It's been great for, for the show because uh, there are so many other people using it. It's a checkout system that, you know, once you're on it, it's, you know, sort of like eBay and Etsy and everything else. You just, it, it becomes easy. So um, now without, you know, answering to some big corporate giant, which PayPal, now eBay disowned them or something. Yeah. So I don't even know what their status is anymore. But... Um, Patreon has worked for me. I've done smaller things like GoFundMe to um, help give me some initial funds for charity events. We had some costs that we wanted to offset, and so I just needed like 300 bucks to get some like USB drives and get some other things done. And um, it made it easier. Again, it was like, it's a simple process. Yeah, there are fees, but uh, because I haven't been asking for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, I'm trying to keep my stress level down about crowdfunding for my own stuff. And um, right now, it's it's you know it's working. It's stressful enough. Jenny did a completely different thing where she actually needed to fund her whole process and um, get the the printed stuff. That's the other thing, like the mailing and shipping and stuff. I I you're gonna have to 
<laughs> You're going to have to talk about that. Thankfully, I, um, I learned all about like DIY, do-it-yourself, but being in indie bands and in Chicago and carrying my own uh, equipment up many stairs. And then also I helped plan uh, Ladyfest Midwest, which was a four-day festival in Chicago, and then all the reunions we've had since. And that was just so much of like on your and in terms of like uh, this Kickstarter I just did, we got it to almost 300 backers. So in terms of um, you know mailing those out, I, I feel like that's very manageable. So I'm not stressed out about that. I did I did have a hesitation with doing a Kickstarter just because it is a ton of work, uh, even though I, I you know knew, knew I could handle it, but. Anything that takes you away from the writing, takes you away from the creative process, you really do have to think about. I had no problem with, um, I have no problem with crowdfunding. And, and from the standpoint of my giving, I love supporting uh, my fellow uh, creators and, and artists and writers. I have a really hard time asking for help. I am the type of person that I will stay up all night getting something done. I will, you know, move myself rather than ask someone. That is just a problem I have. That's, that's a problem that that I grew up in in my household, where like asking for something was seen as weak. Um, so actually for me on an emotional level and a personal level, doing this Kickstarter was really, really good. Um, I also, the artist that I work with on, on Flutter, Jeff McComsey, has had very successful Kickstarters for his zombie comic anthology, Fubar, which any anthology tends to do, or a lot of anthologies tend to do very well on Kickstarter because you've got a lot of people involved, and they have friends and then they have friends. A lot of um, different artists and writers. So I got to learn the ropes from him, and I love collaborating with people, so it was another chance to collaborate with him beyond just the art of Flutter. We got to collaborate on an actual crowdfunding, an actual Kickstarter, and I just learned so much from him. Uh, it's interesting that you brought up the um, aspect of, you know, as a, as a person who's not comfortable with asking for these sorts of things, you know, it's, um, from my perspective as a journalist, I, you know, I can't even tell you the amount of Kickstarters and crowdfunding projects that we see in our tips box, you know, every single day, and it's it got to the point for us like a year or two ago where you know we couldn't keep highlighting everything because there was too much. And if you did one, then it felt like you were you know being rude to somebody else. Um, and but I think what goes along with that is like you can't not do that. You can't not email you know and put yourself out there on social media and everything because you know it may seem like you're you're being too pushy or or whatever, but you know, someone is going to pick something up eventually and, and give you that, that little uh, opening that you might need to get even more in there. Um, but also, you, you, you spoke on uh, collaboration. Um, obviously, it's, it's much different for me. I've done um, part of a, a book anthology called Chick State Comics from Mad Norwegian Press, um, and that was my first uh, you know, I had editors for my freelance work, but I was just, you know, oh, here I'm catching all your spelling and grammar mistakes, you know, nothing too serious. But having a, an, an actual, you know, editorial process and going through and them making suggestions and saying, well, you know, could you go more in depth into this part? I think people will react more to it. It was really um, a great learning experience for me. Have you had those um, kinds of experience with someone who was working above you, per se, that, you know? Uh, yeah, I've had both uh, types of processes, really hands-off and really hands-on uh, because of anthologies, and they're all run differently. Uh, when it came to doing the Comics Against Bullying anthology, which is by Northwest Press, and I don't have a booth, but they have a booth downstairs, so you can go get it there. Um, they were really hands-off. They just 
loved people's stories. They wanted to give creators all the freedom that they possibly could. And I had a really wonderful collaborator in uh, Karen Bolevsky, who's an artist that I, I trust because I, I've known her for so long and I know she does great work. And um, But then there were other anthologies where the, the publisher was also the role of the editor and she would come back and make these story suggestions and stay, say that, you know, the story is too big, cut it down, you know, make the scene tighter. And um, it's, you know, so every single project is going to be some kind of learning process. And, but I also, like Jenny went to Grub Street, but um, I was part of an online class and workshop called Comics Experience. So um, I got used to hearing the different types of feedback where some people are really, really short in their feedback and just, you know, they enjoy something or they, or they don't or maybe they love a character or whatever. And then other people will give you, like, a page-by-page breakdown of their feedback. So it's really, you know, every single project ends up being a really different experience. What I love about indie comics is you can, you can really choose who you work with with indie publishers. I got to choose which indie publisher to go with with Flutter. I had enough interest where I, I chose 215 Inc. I met those guys, they sat they, at uh, a Boston Comic Con, they were two tables down, and I just loved them, um, got to work really closely with them, and, and choose Flutter's release date, and, and all of that. Um, and then, when I was shopping my young adult novel, A Boy Like Me, which features a transgender teenage southern boy protagonist, um, I had an agent and he was shopping it to traditional publishers, and um, while we were waiting to hear back, we heard back from a couple, they loved it, they loved the writing, but they had another LGBTQ title, which means they had anything that fit under that umbrella. And I got tired of waiting, and 215 Inc. offered to publish A Boy Like Me, and I'm like, then I can choose uh, the cover, the cover artist, make sure it doesn't have some boy's face on it. I can, choose, I can keep the title, the content. I also have a say on all the press releases so that the language is um, is not misused in, in describing a, a book with a, a transgender protagonist, which can be an issue. Um, and I got to pick which editors that I worked with. And I worked with two freelance editors on A Boy Like Me. I also went to a teenage uh, trans male consultant who, I, I had him as a consultant on the book, who just went through the whole book with me. Um, so I, got, I get to pick and choose who I work with with Flutter. I can, um, you know, go, again, go to a, a freelance editor. Um, some anth- so far, I've had a lot of great luck with anthologies. I haven't had um, any anyone come back, and um, I, it, it, none of the experiences have been negative so far. Um, how how do you both deal with negative criticisms? Because um, you know, obviously, in in, in the internet age, uh, we see a lot of terrible, terrible things that online, uh, whether about us or people we know or strangers that we you know take offense to. Um, and how does putting yourself out there uh, versus, you know, taking a step back and saying, well, I can't really, you know, deal with this for my own mental health anymore. At this point, I'd probably welcome if somebody wanted to be negative about my work because it's not. It's always, you know, you're a fat hoe or something. Right. And, you know, like, it's like I get it. I cosplay a lot. So, you know, you're going to get a lot of judgments on your appearance. That's just the way the cosplay world works. It's just really, really funny how insecure other people are that they need to go after some stranger and just um, 
it gets, you know, you know it gets ridiculous. Um, if, if somebody was criticizing my work in the editorial process, then I have to just take it seriously. I, I will sit there and cry. I absolutely will. I, I, I don't want to, I, I go into, you know, full brooding writer mode and think that I suck and think I should never write another thing ever again. Um, but then the story comes out better. It's just, um, yeah, the cosplay world is, is a whole different ball of negative feedback. Um, I can't imagine what people go through when they cross-play. Like, we're seeing, we're at FlameCon, so there's going to be a ton of that. You know, that, a long time ago when I started, was such a rare thing. And, you know, you're writing about a transgender character, I'm sure you, you know, we've all seen the Caitlyn Jenner comments. We've all seen them. So, um, I, you're not the the character, so I don't know, maybe maybe you've had a different experience with how people handle your character versus how they handle your writing. I've had some uh, some things online on my Facebook wall and stuff. The, the great thing that I got to experience um, with A Boy Like Me is I did a year-long uh, course at Grub Street called The Novel Incubator, and it was with nine other people, a huge demographic and age range. The age range went up to like 65 years old. Um, and what we workshopped our novels, and I heard by the end of that year anything I could possibly hear that I was going to hear somewhere. I mean, people can be way mean than they are outside of a workshop. People can be meaner than, than in a workshop because you have their rules. Um, but I had heard so many comments and so much feedback that I was prepared for it. And I think I think you can workshop something too much. I think you. I, I think writers groups are great um, to. Uh, all writers should experience it on some level. You don't want to over-workshop something either, but it's a great way to prepare yourself for what's out, what you're going to hear back. And you start to listen for what resonates. Um, if you start to hear something multiple times, then it's an issue. Um, you know, I have an issue writing mothers because I have an issue with my mother that I'm working out so that every character that I write, every book I write won't be the same, like vilifying the mother. And I've had people say that to me, and I'm like, yeah, I know, I'm working on it, I'm working on it. Because that's the thing you have to decide as a writer. When do you put something out? You know, you don't want to just uh, not put something out there because you learn from your readers and you learn from other writers in workshops, in writing groups, and so you continue to grow. So you, at some point you have to start putting out your work, um, but you then have to be prepared for what comes out, for what comes back and how people respond to it. And you can't control that. You have to let people respond to it the way they do and, and hold on to what resonates with you and then ignore everything else because it will make you cry and it will make you want to throw your laptop out the window. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a cliche question to ask, but I think one that everyone always kind of likes to hear the answer, but where do you um, get your inspiration from, and when you're having that hard time that I'm sure pretty much all creative people have, when you just can't think of what you know to do next, um, what do you do to overcome that? Uh, every once in a while, there'll be something that's just in my head for a long time and eventually works its way out into a story, but... Uh, for the most part, it's the news. I just I, I watch a tremendous amount of TV right now, and um, the story that's actually in the Comics Against Bullying book was based on from me hearing a true story about a girl who's uh, you know underage high school age kid and was sexting a boy, and then the what happens when that gets perpetuated throughout the school. 
and um, you know, and now this is unfortunately not a rare thing, and you hear it about a, a lot. So there's just this um, this sadness and this almost. I, I guess I don't think it's an epidemic, but it's a lot more awareness now of what teenage girls are going through and many of them are taking their own lives and we see this especially with you know uh, transgender girls who are trying to make their way through high school which has got to be impossible because I hated high school um, so I can't imagine going through uh, that kind of questioning but now with like sexting I you know every celebrity's had a sexting scandal at this point so one of the things that struck me on the news and through Twitter, I get a lot of my news from Twitter, is how uh, particularly girls of color are ignored in the news. And th when things like Steubenville happen, um, it becomes big national headlines because it was some cute blonde white girl. So it was really important to me to take that kind of news story and you know, make it address somebody more marginalized, somebody who, who might not ever make the national news. And, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of crap in the news that's good fodder for, you know, writing crime stories. Um, you know, other things are just uh, from TV and, and also from meeting people. So, yeah, I mean, definitely everybody ends up somehow in a book. It just happens. Um, the novel that I'm working on and still editing... Uh, my own personality is in four different characters. Uh, it's just, you know, even the Asian one. Like, it's just one of those things where I have no connection to Asian culture at all, but she represents me in a really good mood. And so, um, you know, so it just happens. You do end up just sometimes, I guess, taking way too much from life sometimes. Um, yeah, mine will have a lot of issues with men in my books, so. <laughs> I... Um, there's the cliche, write what you know, and I try to figure out, or not figure out, but I write, focus on what I'm obsessed with, because a novel like A Boy Like Me, I started writing in 2010, I started working on Flutter in 2010, and you need something, I mean, a novel, even a graphic novel can take months to write, and it needs to be something, a, a subject matter that you're obsessed with, and you don't necessarily want to answer the question, but you want to explore the question. For me, uh, the root of Flutter came, um, from, I was in a small southern town, and I wasn't out to myself. Um, and I would work at a movie theater after high school, uh, during the week and on the weekends, and I'd watch all my guy cousins and my guy friends bring their girls to the movies. And I wanted that. And I didn't know how to have that a as a girl, and it just wasn't a reality uh, in my small town or to myself. And so I started imagining what it would be like if I were a guy, and that in my head, I imagined that it would be better. It would be it would be a better experience, and that's the root of Flutter, um, and that's where Flutter comes from, and uh, that's where my obsession, I think, with gender comes from. Um, and then, I, of course, I grew up and I realized, oh, guys have a different experience in in in, in a lot of cases, but they also have difficulties too, and. Um, kind of got beyond that, but the root of Flutter stayed there. And then with a boy like me, I wanted to write about an experience that was completely different than my own. This isn't someone imagining that he's a guy and imagining that life would be better. This is uh, a, a guy who is a guy, 
uh, assigned the wrong gender at, at birth, or you know, other people see him as a butch lesbian in this small town, but he's a guy, and he has a hard time with language. Uh, I was raised by a lot of like the strong southern male types, and that is Peyton, that's the character in A Boy Like Me. He has a really hard time communicating. And to do first person from his point of view, so you get his inner landscape, but he's having a hard time communicating that with the world, I wanted to explore that. So for me, it becomes an obsession. Um, and because I need that to sustain me through all the revisions, through working with editors, through getting the work out there. I want to uh, switch gears for a little bit because both of you do do other things. Obviously, your cosplay is related to uh, your comic work as well, but um, and your music. Um, Amber and I have known each other for for many years now, and um, I think we probably first met in person in cosplay at New York Comic Con. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, and I, you know, had loved all these characters for so long, and and when I first found out that cosplay was a thing, I was like. Oh my God! Like Halloween, whenever I want. Exactly, you know? <laughs> that was my reaction too. I'm like, you mean it's not just Star Trek? Like anybody can do this? Yeah. Um, we we've had some fun both doing our own work, um, but also working together because I am one of those people who um, has no sewing ability whatsoever. And I know a lot of people who've never done cosplay before think that you know it requires you to have to be some you know skilled. Uh, fashionista, and that's not the case. You can still do cosplay that sort of, you know, you piece together from things, and that's what, what I have been known for. Um, but Amber helped me a lot um, working on costumes, which is a really cool um, thing because she does so, so that, that helped me out it, a bit. The, the coolest thing about that is that every time Jill got to go to San Diego Comic-Con, and I had never been there, there were pictures of, of things I made at San Diego. <laughs> I'm like, this is great, look. And you know, and then it ends up on all kinds of websites and coverage, and it's just really exciting that way. Yeah. Um, talk talk a little more about how you got into cosplay and how that has um, helped with confidence, or you know, just putting yourself out there with your work as well, or how that has maybe negatively impact. You know, if you go to a convention in cosplay, it's um, it's enlightening because uh, when I started cosplaying, I was like. 40 pounds thinner than I am right now. So um, it just seemed like it was easier to do. And I was still called fat all the time. <laughs> and, um, but it, you know, if you get the right group of friends, that's kind of the key thing is just stick with people who aren't assholes, to be honest. Um, you know, they'll tell you maybe if something's wrong with your costume or how to, you know, maybe make it better. But it, the, sometimes the cosplay community gets really incredibly nitpicky. Like somebody was complaining because my nail, I had nail polish on and it was like black nail polish or something. I'm like, you know, I'm going to be Wonder Woman for one day. My nail polish is really not going to affect my charity work right now. So get over it. Um, and that was, that was one of the big things was, um, it's not that it's necessarily worked its way into any of my, my comic book writing or any, of my, any other kind of writing, but um, making costumes has, uh, you know, it, it gave me a lot of friends, first of all, because there's all kinds of forums for tutorials and helping each other out and doing meetups and big photo shoots. And, um, but then at the same time, I, uh, with my comic shop owners, we started doing a charity event every October. So it became like this, 
you know, life of its own where uh, it used to be Wonder Woman Day and so it was really important for me to be a great Wonder Woman and I did a few different versions of her and now it's like it's just this whole big thing that's a two-day event and people come from Virginia and New York and they come from, you know, from all over to be with us to help, you know, with this charity function and it's all because of comics and you know, it's just a matter of how we're a bunch of weirdos sometimes in spandex or, you know, plastic and whatever. Um, and it wouldn't even be possible without the creators because it's the, that particular event is an art auction. So we get original sketches from comic book artists and we auction them off. So it's, I mean, a true collaborative process in that it takes everybody, you know, publishers give us books and artists give us their sketches and then we have the cosplayers come out and um, even the gaming companies like WizKids and stuff like that will give us things to give away for raffles. So it's, you know, it, it makes a strange, small, little nerd community and it's the safety of having a bubble and you know that it's a safe place and it's really different than just being on the internet because being on the internet people can just say whatever they want to say but um, working with the 501st has been great too because I'm not a member of the 501st but they're like my favorite people in the world if you don't know who they are they're the stormtroopers that you see at events and the Jedi's they um, so it's the Star Wars uh, cosplay troops and they're really specific to actually be in, in part of their their chapter they're really accurate with trying to make things look like they just came out of a Lucasfilm, and sometimes better. I mean, you know, it's just remarkable what they can do. So we have the most amazing chapter in New Jersey, and they come and they help us raise money. So it's just, you know, there are these really cool things, and if you can overlook the hate on the internet, you get those good experiences too. Uh, talk a little about your music. Yeah, I. Um when I was in school in Chicago, I played in indie bands. Um, my my the, the longest running one was a three-piece all-girl band, and we were called Heather's Damage after um, after the movie Heather's, which is still my favorite movie in the world. It's just never not going to be. Um, and I think that just being in an indie band and, and having to book your own shows and make your own flyers and and do email lists and and do all of that stuff had totally prepared me for working in indie comics. Um, and getting, you know, just getting comics out there, getting the books out there, and, and in the choices that I made of not going into traditional publishing, and not my own band. I, I you know, I've just been inspired by indie music. Um, you know, bands like Slater Kenny, who, oh my God, they do it right. In my book, they do it right. And I just, I think to use them as an example in other formats is just the way to go. For me, it's, it works for me. Um, I'm not in a band right now. I, I miss the experience uh, of playing live and that kind of collaboration. But again, that kind of collaboration prepared me for working with artists. Um, I did write a, I still write music, and um, I wrote a set of songs to go with A Boy Like Me from the point of view of the girl who loves Peyton, <coughs> the protagonist. And so all the songs are, are from her point of view, and they're available for free on my website. Um, and I'm, I'm going to work on another project that involves writing music soon too. So music is still a huge part of my life and I love to not, not force it in, but if, if I can include it in any project I'm working on and it adds to the project, then I do. Um, I want to know if there's any questions from the audience because I want to make sure we leave time for that if there is any. 
Yes, go for it. I have a question for girl in dance. Okay. <laughs> uh, what was the best game you ever played? What was the worst and what was the weirdest? Um, uh, the best gig I ever played um, was a, a friend's CD release party, and um, it was sold out, and I was just so happy for her, and we, my band, you know, it kind of took the pressure off us, it wasn't our night, um, it, was all, it was all about her, the focus was on her, and, and we wanted to put on a great show for her night, and that was the night we ended up getting signed by an indie label in Chicago, um, uh, you know, just, it was just a magical night. Um, the worst gig I ever played was in St. Louis. I had the flu. I couldn't talk. I had to, I couldn't talk for like that whole day. Uh, and I was seeing a lot of friends. And so it was like writing on, because I want, you know, I didn't want to cancel the show. We traveled to St. Louis. You always have to go through with the show. And the thing is, is a lot of our songs, there's a lot of story guitar, there's a lot of screaming. So I could scream, but I couldn't talk. Um, but I didn't get to do my best. And whenever you're like that, you always feel crappy about the show. Um, the most awkward is honestly um, one of the CD release parties for my band. Um, I just chose to, to play in my bra, and um, I have no problem with that, but I, um, you know, I had a, a girlfriend at the time who had an issue with it, and it just created a lot of drama. So, I, you know, I don't know if I'd make that choice today if it was going to create drama. Great question. <laughs> Come on, somebody else has a question. No? Okay. Then uh, I'll, I'll go in a bit about something that I was um, interested to hear your, your take on. Um, obviously on the Mary Sue, we um, try to talk about diversity issues as much as we can within our you know, entertainment um, media. And um, there is so much more talk within just the last year of what you know, consumers want and how there is a growing audience for things that are not necessarily represented in, you know, our comic books, our movies, and, and our TV shows um, right now. What do you both think of how, you know, the industry has been um, sort of awakening to these things that have been around for so long anyway? Um, and do you think that it's going to continue um, along that line? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an awakening. It's like a renaissance, especially in comics. Um, this stuff has, it, honestly, it's been published in indie for a really long time. I think it was just that they were the underground comics that sometimes you ran off on a Xerox machine and you stapled together on your kitchen table. Uh, and now, finally, these other publishers are catching on that it's, it's okay to have a gay character or a gay wedding. And... But then some of them are just such head scratchers. Like they don't want marriage at all. Like you, uh, I, that blows my mind. Um, with when you see the successes of things like Ms. Marvel and Captain Marvel, <laughs> you just you have to hold that up, and it's like you just want to whack them on the nose. Like how can you be ignoring these sales figures? Um, why their movies are still long after everybody else's, I don't know. Um, that's the problem with Wonder Woman, is they keep pushing it off so long that they're setting themselves up to disappoint people. It's like, if you made just as many incarnations of Wonder Woman as you have Batman, and you had 15 different things on TV, and book covers, and everything out there, then you have opportunity to fail. And then people get over those failures. 
I mean, there have been some really shitty Batman stories. <laughs> Not talking about my boyfriend like that. <laughs> um, you know, so Wonder Woman has not had an opportunity to fail. She needs to come out perfect. And I, unfortunately, I think people are expecting that of Captain Marvel as well. Um, you know, and then you get into the casting issue, and, you know, if you're over 23, you're too old. Um, you know, that's a whole other story. It's okay if you're Iron Man. But, um, you know, but diversity as far as other content goes, I think because pop culture and nerddom is now sort of its own big thing, like Comic-Con's not about comics anymore, um, when things like Sense8 come out on Netflix, and there's just, I mean, I'm not to spoil it for you, but if you haven't gotten to episode six, there's just a lot of naked sex and orgy things going on, and it's everybody. It's just everybody, every body. The, the, they have every color body. They do not have body diversity in any way, shape, or form. And I'm sorry, but fat people have sex too. You know? It's just, it's going to happen. So um, there's, when there's diversity, there's just a whole lot to talk about because you're talking races, you're talking genders. Luckily, there's more awareness of gender. Like we, you know... Sorry, we only had two boxes when I was growing up. It was either the M box or the F box. That's all there was. Um, so I'm learning. It's a learning process for me. So if I'm going to include a, a character that's not going to fit into one of those boxes, I'm probably going to fuck it up. But I want to. I want the opportunity to make the mistake and get it right. And you know, I want Wonder Woman to be bisexual, like in the worst way. Like if I was ever to write her, it would just be happening. So thank you to Jimmy Palmiotti, by the way, and Amanda Connor for finally confirming Ivy and Harley. Um, they're finally officially a couple. Um, and literally just happened. Literally, like, like last yeah, night. So, you know, finally, finally. And, and not only that, but the way Jimmy or Amanda wrote the tweet, it sounds like they're polyamorous, which gives me one more thing. Yeah, they said it was, wasn't monogamous. It's not monogamous. So um, as far as you know, my lifestyle goes, it's, um, there's very little of that. Usually um, it's done badly or it's done as like an experiment, something like that. So um, it's, there's, diversity is just such a big issue. and. You know, I'm not about to marry my cat, but right now she's way more loyal to me than anybody else. So, <laughs> I, you know, first brings up so many questions like with, you know, is it marriage or is it about education or is it, you know, roles of women in Hollywood? Because they're kind of, it's kind of screwed. Like there's actually a group or a conference that was called the 3% Conference because at the time there were only 3% women directors. And that's you know, sad, and that when women are in a scene, people think that women are dominating a scene even though they're only like one-third or something like that. Like, whatever the number was, it was like astronomically low, but just by putting women into something, men think we're taking their space. And, um, you know, podcasting was a lot like that, like I was saying, it was the boys' sandbox. And, you know, you know, then finally these blogs came out that were at least feminist and now they're being better about being intersectional about it so so that all kinds of voices and all kinds of coverage are, are talked about because when I started my podcast I hadn't had a transgender person on my podcast for like two years until I finally got 
over, you know, my fear of asking somebody, hey, do you want to be on my show? And it's just like, you know, it's like, well, yeah. Uh, you know, like, I don't know why I was so afraid to talk to people. And um, it was hard for me to even get women on the show. I had, like, so many male comic book creators for, like, the first couple years. And, uh, you know, it took a big effort for me to just say, I just got to stop. I, I, if they're going to say no or not get back to me, that's just going to happen. And, and just keep trying. What I love about what's going on in this whole diversity in comics and this, all these comics coming out is I feel like we're getting to the place where the most interesting thing about an LGBTQ character is not that they're LGBTQ, and that makes me very happy. We need we need a ton more stories. Everyone wants to see themselves represented. Uh, you're looking, you know, for something that resonates with you, and so we still have a lot more work to do. Um, but I love that that is no longer, or becoming no longer, more and more, the uh, the most interesting thing. Yeah, it, it's interesting you say that because like that is what everyone I think here at least would be striving for. They just want it to be normal like it is in, in our world you know and it's it's that sort of thing where uh you know we are seeing some things that are heavy-handed that you know we kind of groan over but at the same time it's like okay well they were making an effort how can we let them know that you know here's how it could be better next time you know because there are people who do want to make that effort in the industries in the the big two um and who just maybe aren't as comfortable you know like you said you just weren't comfortable um and it, it, that's why we talk about it so much on, on the website because, you know, people say, uh, you know, there'll be a casting for a movie and, and we'll just kind of be like, oh, look, another white dude was cast in, you know, a role that is not racially specific at all. And people even, you know, some of our regular readers are like, oh, do you have to say that every time? And I'm like, until they surprise us and don't do that, yeah, we are going to keep saying that every time. And then you run into cases where it's actually worse because they've whitewashed a character. So they've taken Asian characters and Native American characters and completely just said, here's a white person. And, you know, and then they come up, so, you know, sometimes they get as tricky as possible, like, well, he's like 116. It's like, well, if you hadn't erased them off the planet, maybe he'd be more. It's, it's, a, it's a hard, you know, there was just, um, the Hollywood Reporter ran a, a, an article the other day where they were trying to sort of, it, it, it felt like a PR move because no one actually went on the record using their name to, to talk about um, the movie um, Pan that's going to be coming out. It's a Peter Pan story, but um, they cast Rooney Mara as Tiger Lily. And, you know, people were, were upset about it. And they, they actually went on, you know, anonymous record to say, well, we, we looked at Native uh, actresses, we looked at Black actresses, we looked at, you know, and they're like, and, and she was the best actor for the role. And, you know, no disrespect to her as, as an actress or anything, but a lot of people took huge offense to that. So like, well, she's not the best actress out there. You know, there are other people that, that could have, have done this. And I think it's just, it's a matter of like, you know, let's, Let's keep saying it until we see it. I mean, it's, it's um, no spoilers, but I saw Jurassic World, um, and when I see films now, I can't not see where diversity could have been placed so easily, you know? Um, it, there's a, a scene in their control room, and you have Bryce Dallas Howard, who is the star, and then two, you know, more minor um, characters. And I looked at them, and they're, they're all white people, and I thought, God, like, just put somebody else in there, you know? Like, it's it's... 
it's frustrating. Right. And it, t it took somebody pointing it out to me too, and that obviously points out what privilege is, because somebody had, it, somebody had to tell me, you know there's no girls in the Lord of the Rings except for Galadriel or something, and I was just like, oh my God. And like they had to, so for the movies, they had to like add some characters, and they created like Arwen has like one line in like she doesn't even have a speaking line in the book, like she has like one paragraph. So they they built it up, and you know for that wonderful comedian. Now I'm not even remembering his name, but he to point out that you know you can't have a brown hobbit. You know it's like why? You know it's fantasy. It's fantasy worlds. That's why we do get up on our pedestals when we talk about things like culture and rape tropes and, and all this kind of stuff because you know maybe you just need to have that pointed out to you about what's failing and what's missing um, and then you, hopefully it'll work its way in but um, yeah I would have been fine if Doctor Strange had been somebody besides Cumberbatch right. uh, do you have any final questions alright everyone's shy back um, it's hot. It's hot. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all for coming. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Um, if you guys just want to let them know where they can find you online and find your work. Um, my website is amberunmasked.com and my show is vodka o'clock. Um, it's also on iTunes and Stitcher. <laughs> and um, I'm on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber. Um, and Basically, if you just go to the website, it has like I've signed up on every social media thing that exists, but unfortunately, most of them really suck. So mostly, of all places, I'm going to be on Twitter. Um, I for the next the last ten minutes of uh, today of BlameCon, I'll be at table four. I have a few copies of A Boy Like Me and um, uh, Flutter, the Heat. Can't <laughs> Bad. Um, or you know, just stop by and say hello on, on your way out. So that's table four. You can also uh, find links to all my work at JennyWood.com. You can read the first chapter of Flutter for free there. And uh, I'm on Twitter at JennyWood and Did. Thanks, everybody. Once again, thank you to the great volunteer crew at FlameCon and Geeks Out. They were amazing people to work with. And special thanks to Jill Pantosi for moderating this panel and for Jenny to Jenny Wood for coming down all the way from Boston to be there that day. Um, if you have any questions, of course, you can find me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber. You can, uh, you know, of course add comments to the posts about this particular episode at amberunmasked.com. And if you can sponsor the show and the website, just go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked. Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>